Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Today, my guest is Mark Schiller. He's the founder and medical director of Mind Therapy Clinic. So we're going to talk about common cognitive disorders and distortions and uh, people particularly with depression. So welcome, Mark. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, if you would tell me a bit about your background and how you came to study and do clinical work in the area you're in. Well, I'm a psychiatrist, and first of all, I went to medical school, and I knew pretty early on that I was interested in the brain and the mind and how that all goes together. And so from there, did a psychiatry residency at Yale and then was interested in research. So I uh, did a fellowship uh, in research at UCSF and continued to do some research at the university, but also started to do some research uh, with a private company that was doing interesting things with imaging in terms of psychiatric disorders. Mm. I've left that. I've really been just focusing on my own clinic. It's a large clinic in San Francisco Bay Area where we do a lot of different types of clinical work, about 30 clinicians with us. And some of the work still is what you might call neuropsychiatric work, where we're looking at the brain and, and doing specific treatments to different areas of the brain. Oh, uh, yeah. Can you describe any of the neuropsychiatric work you're doing? Like what does it evolve and you know, what kind of conditions does it treat? Well, we still do a form of EEG or electroencephalogram that measures uh, the activity of the brain. And then you can take that, that data, which is, comes out as quantitative data, and you can transform that into pictures of the brain and how it's functioning. And so we'll use that sometimes to help us decide on medication treatment, sometimes just to see if there's an area of an abnormality in some particular part of the brain. And then we're also doing work that, that certainly many people are doing called transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a way of stimulating defined parts of the brain that are associated with different psychiatric problems. Mm, okay. Well, let's move to depression. So what are some of the different types of depression that uh, you work with, you know, the I guess two types of bipolar and other kinds. Like, what are the um, the main you know types of depression out there? Well, um, the depression is is a complicated field uh, because, in a sense, depression is a symptom. You know, I feel depressed. I feel sad. I feel down. Sometimes that's a very normal feeling. Obviously, um, if one's had a loss in your family, that you know you have sadness and uh, grief. And in many ways, that's depression, and it looks clinically at times like what we would call a clinical depression. And so the feeling of being depressed as a symptom is a normal part of life at various times in everybody's life. And the difficult part is to distinguish when that somewhat normal feeling is pervasive and is affecting people's lives and is, is really a clinical matter. For the most part, it's very hard to distinguish between depression and grief and other and various forms of depression. There's been various attempts to classify depression, you know, as sort of endogenous depression or reactive depression. 
people have different theories about mild depression. Is it actual depression or is it related to personality? Really, I'd say that two of the main ways that are distinguishable from what we would call a clinical depression, which psychiatrists usually call unipolar depression, is the depression also associated with bipolar disorder. So, you know, bipolar depression. And then you will see depression related to dementia or cognitive problems. And that sometimes can also be uh, distinguished from, you know, sort of the basic unipolar depression. Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to ask you, is it the case that uh, the common cognitive distortions come along with depression? You know, like catastrophizing, you know, being black and white, like everyone hates me type stuff. You know, the voice that I've heard from multiple people, like they hear a voice saying bad things to them in their head. You know, I guess there's like a list of common cognitive distortions. I don't know if the voice is part of it, but do those accompany all the types of depression or some types or is it very individual? Yeah. I mean, I'd say they often do. Maybe in most cases they do. Maybe not always or there's different patterns of uh, how people are thinking in depression, but it's certainly a very prominent, common issue with these, these cognitive distortions. And in a sense, it's uh, a whole line of psychotherapy called cognitive behavioral therapy was developed specifically to try to address those types of distortions, which are, you know, guilty, you know, distortions that are related to your own, one's own guilt, one's own feeling of failure, feeling of no hope, etc. Well, how important is it to, to recognize them in people and classify and characterize if someone's experiencing them and how many, like how does that affect their your treatment or your ability to treat them? Well, I think that there is some importance in that people who have symptoms of depression but but may not have unipolar depression don't always have the same types of cognitive distortions. So for instance, we have what we call personality disorders, one that many people have heard about and in many ways is a is a very prominent personality disorder is a borderline personality disorder. And I don't know if I want to go into all the specifics of that, but uh, certainly depressed mood is frequent with borderline personality disorder. And often a feeling of emptiness goes along with it. The cognitive distortions are not generally prominent or, they're, or the same patterns of cognitive distortions aren't as prominent as in clinical unipolar depression. And so... Sometimes it does help us to distinguish what is a disorder, what is a depressive disorder versus depression as a symptom. And that sometimes is important because borderline personality disorder doesn't tend to respond to the same sorts of medication treatments that we might use for unipolar depression. Well, as a, a regular person, not as a therapist or anything, you know, I've interacted with various depressed people and it seems like, I guess, you know, outside of the clinic, the cognitive distortions make it difficult to interact with people that have depression because you'll say stuff and they're like, they say, say things as if you never said anything or they're not listening to you or they don't believe you or it's just, it, you know, I guess frankly, it's just, it, it just makes it very difficult to interact with people that are really affected that way. So yeah. from the therapist perspective, does that make it harder for you and your clinicians to help people if they have like really strong distortions that's like, Yes, that's an interesting issue because these types of cognitive distortions, in, in one sense, how they're very important is as a indication of the level of depression or the severity of depression. So people who complain of mild depression and who have symptoms of mild depression don't have as prominent cognitive distortions, rather. And when you look at people with severe depression, the cognitive distortions 
are very prominent and they're constant. And you're right in the sense, no matter what topic you start discussing, it goes back to these cognitive distortions. And they may sit there really literally all day long, just going over the same distortions in their head. We call those ruminations. And so, you know, the presence of ruminations really is an indication of severe depression. And it changes the treatment in, in essence. So it's often very hard to do therapy, psychotherapy on people that are severely depressed. It's you know somewhat like banging your head against the wall. You're just not getting through to people. So in that case, medications really are tremendously important, and you know are clearly the treatment of choice in severe depression. Not to say that you shouldn't try to keep on doing psychotherapy and interact with the patient, but they really do need medications where they need other, what we'd call somatic treatments, you know, body-based or organic treatments, such as transcranial magnetic stimulation or electroconvulsive therapy. And so, you know, it is an important thing to recognize. And it, w it was something that was apparent to me when I was a, a resident at Yale. I was initially on a research unit where they were doing various research protocols for treatment-resistant depression. So we really had a, a lot of very seriously depressed patients on the unit. And I was trying to do therapy with them, but I, I learned that you really couldn't get anywhere in doing the therapy until the medications really kicked in and the patients were starting to get better. Oh, so that opened the door for you to, for them to be able to listen to you a little bit. Yes, yes. You know, and the greater the improvement in the depression or even starting with, off with more mild forms of depression, I think the more important psychotherapy is. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Okay, makes sense. Um, so you mentioned a couple of therapies. Can you talk about what's involved? Like the electric convulsive sounds pretty scary. Like someone's being electrocuted, you know, tied down to a bed or something. But I know that from watching horror movies and all that, but what, what is it like today in a modern setting? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. I, I saw it in a, what would I think be called a non-modern setting. When I was uh, younger, I was doing some work in a psychiatric hospital in Taiwan, and this was back in the 80s. And the way they did a UCT is certainly not the way we would do it now. Now, patients are anesthetized, so they are given something, so they're under anesthesia, and then their muscles are immobilized so that they don't hurt themselves when they go into a seizure. And, and back in the day in Taiwan, they didn't do that. So I saw people really in a very unfortunate way of doing uh, ECT. I'm happy that we do it in uh, what I think are more humane ways now, at least in this country. But once you do that, you are, you're using electricity to basically cause a seizure. And that seems to reset the brain in many ways. And it's quite safe the way we do it. It's usually done uh, in a hospital post-op room and as an anesthesiologist present. And people come out of it with some confusion and some short-term memory loss usually. 
uh, but over time that tends to dissipate uh, with further sessions. And you know, it would still be considered our most effective treatment and sort of the gold standard for treatment-resistant depression and something I frequently refer patients to. So, so, okay. so do they remember the experience or they just have a little bit of after effects, but they're, are they better after one session or multiple? And do they remember, like they don't appear to be traumatized by it, but helped? Yeah. I mean, generally that's the case. They don't remember the treatment itself. They remember perhaps going to the post-op room and coming out of the post-op room. Initially, they tend to be more confused for you know, a few hours or something after the treatment. And then as they have subsequent treatments, that period of confusion lessens. It's very effective, of course, not on everybody, but in patients who have uh, their depression lift as a result of ECT, they're, you know, uniformly happy that they did it. You know, I have, I don't know, five patients now who are doing ECT treatments and all responding. And it was often the only thing that was working. And they're all very happy that they've done it and don't have any permanent deficits that are obvious as a result of the treatment. Is it a protocol that's done a certain number of times and then it lasts forever? Or does the person you know, go recidivist and then they have to do it again after, let's say, a year or something? Yeah. Well, first of all, it tends to be about 5 to 15 treatments, and that's often a decision of the ECT physician. And if you have a resolution of depression after that, about 50% of patients will need more ECT treatments in the same year. So some do well for an extended period of time. Some need some maintenance treatment. Okay. What what other treatments do you work on? Have you tried ketamine with people or mushrooms or, you know, what are some of the other therapies you have? Well, we do some ketamine treatment here and ketamine seems to be a very effective treatment as well. Some research suggests that it's almost as effective as ECT, you know, has some potential side effects. And so it's a decision between what might be best to do between ECT or ketamine at times. Ketamine is done in generally in two ways. Um, there's sort of a medical model where one is getting an IV infusion or sometimes an intramuscular injection and just relying on the chemical effects of the ketamine to lift depression. And then a lot of people are interested in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, where you're using ketamine somewhat as a dissociative or you might say a psychedelic medication and then processing what's happening during those treatments with psychotherapy. And that sometimes seems to be a more long-lasting treatment, but both are, are being done. And I think research certainly still needs to be done in trying to decide you know, when you might want to do the assisted psychotherapy or not. So there's also a FDA-approved medication, which is a form of ketamine called S-ketamine, and that's done through a nasal, a nasal route. And that does seem effective, but there's some evidence that the basic form of ketamine that's given in infusions might be superior in some ways. Oh, I, I had with the electric convulsive therapy, I forgot to ask you, have there been uh, people that have seizures that have been studied? Do they tend to not have any depression because of the seizures? Maybe in those people, it's a natural thing that kind of cleans up their mind periodically when they have seizures, you know, a, a perverse benefit of it. Has that been observed? Well, it's an interesting question. And, and I've thought about it, but I don't actually know the answer to that one. But in some sense, it is a resetting of the brain. And it's likely that that does help in some ways. Okay. Well, going, sorry, but yeah, it just came to mind. But uh, going back to the ketamine, so does ketamine have, does it seem to last as long as ECT? Is it 
totally different dynamic. Like uh, there's certain flavors of depression that are more amenable to ketamine versus ECT. Well, you know, where to use ECT versus ketamine, it's, it's still an open decision. Sometimes it depends on person's physical state and the side effect profile that, that might be there in cases where people have a history of psychosis or significant dissociation. Often people won't do ketamine therapy. That may be true at times for bipolar depression, although there's people that are trying it for that reason. Whereas for ECT, with any of those issues, it's still safe and, and often done. So, you know, it's it's sometimes a decision what what for that patient seems to be best in terms of potential side effects and as well as benefits. Can be treatment like ECT often comes with future treatments and maintenance treatments. It's a newer field and I think some of the processes and statistics about it are still a little bit up in the air, but clearly there's some people that respond to further maintenance treatments. One of the reasons why people are trying out ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is there's a sense that some of the benefits can be more long-lasting. Does the therapy happen while you're having the infusion of ketamine or after? So we're thinking you're out of it while you're having it. Yeah. I mean, the therapist is present in the room and sometimes is is interacting with the patient and there may be some psychotherapeutic processes that happen in the room at the time. But frequently what happens is the next day or sometimes soon after the ingestion of the ketamine, you have your integration session where you're processing what occurred during the, the session. Mm, okay. Gotcha. Does it happen just when people have infusions or I guess there's also like these dissolvable trochees you could take for, you know, that are much lower dosage uh, if you have an episode, but is the therapy only done when you have a, a high dose, you know, like, again, like an infusion or a, you know, a large injection? Well, I mean, you can do it with any route, really. So you could do it IV, uh, intramuscular, nasally, or orally with these trochies. And then often when people are doing the assisted therapy along with the ketamine, you will tend to go up on the dosage to enter a somewhat dissociative or hallucinogenic state. Hmm. Okay. Um, other therapies that you use quite often that seem to have good efficacy in addition? Well, TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation. What's that What's that like? What's that about? Well, I mean, it's a very ingenious thing. I mean, it, it wasn't originally developed for psychiatric purposes, but people found a use. And so what it is, is that you're sending a magnetic pulse through the skull. And, you know, when you're doing ECT, because your skull doesn't conduct electricity very well, you're using a lot of electricity and then it causes the seizure. With TMS, you're using a magnetic pulse and, you know, it doesn't cause a seizure, but the magnetic pulse gets to the brain. And with that magnetic pulse, you can cause a small electrical current to form in, in the part of the brain where the magnetic pulse went. And so you're stimulating parts of the brain that we think are related to depression or other disorders. And what the process is, is a series of these magnetic pulses. And it sounds and really is essentially the same coil like that you would use in an MRI machine. And you do these pulses, series of pulses and you can do it for about three minutes and 40 seconds is one type of high-frequency pulse, or you can do pulse that's about 19 minutes, a series of pulses for about 19 minutes, which is a somewhat lower-frequency way of doing it. And you do these treatments five days a week for about six weeks. The treatment is very much 
not side effect free, but largely side effect free. So you're not causing a seizure, you're not causing confusion. Usually there's there's really no side effects except sometimes the pulses are a little uncomfortable or you might have a headache. And then in about one in 30,000 times, there is a seizure. Although sometimes that seems to be because people put the coil in the wrong place. So it sounds like ECT, but it's really much easier other than you're doing it so frequently and largely side effect free. Estimates of its uh, effectiveness in depression are anywhere from 50 to to about 80% uh, response rate. Um, so where is it positioned to preferentially affect the brain? What's the right versus wrong positioning? Well, the wrong position might be over the motor cortex, which might be what in some cases has caused the seizure. But for treatment purposes, the FDA-approved protocol is over the what's called the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, so a little bit behind and above your eyeball, basically. And another common place to do it, but not an FDA-approved protocol, is the right-sided uh, version of that, which is very frequently done in Europe. And in many ways, that's an easier protocol to do because you're not using such a high frequency when you do it that way. And so it's less uncomfortable. People are looking at and stimulating the brain in other areas for different disorders as well. Maybe those are just, you know, old wives' tales or something, but does handedness of the person affect, you know, the advocacy of the treatment? You know, someone say, oh, your left brain, your right brain. I know it's kind of like colloquialisms, but, you know, are there any particulars about people, again, like handedness or other characteristics that cause this treatment to either work or not work or affect them differently? Yeah. I mean, I've not seen anything that indicates that there's differential response rates based on handedness. Um, any other you know, physiological things that could affect uh, how someone responds to TMS? Well, I mean, we, we tend to not do it on somebody who's had a seizure before because there is some risk of causing a seizure, even though it's rare. You know, if people had a head injury that caused a structural change in their brain, the treatment might not work well, and you might not be able to position the coil in the proper place as a result. If you have any metal. Oh, well, yeah, what if someone's had a concussion, you know, six months ago, 10 years ago, et cetera, or head trauma, you know, traumatic brain injury, I guess. We're sure that right. would probably exclude people, but concussions, what about that? Well, that wouldn't generally be a contraindication if there were no structural damage apparent to the brain. And frequently when there's when there, people have had traumatic brain injury, it doesn't change the, the structure of the brain. It may change you know, what's sort of the microscopic cellular functioning, but that's not generally a contraindication to TMS. If you have metal or, you know, in your brain for various reasons, shrapnel or what have you, you wouldn't do that because, you know, the magnetic current would cause magnetic effect of any metallic or magnetic metals in the brain. So, yeah, so I mean, there are some contraindications, but again, it's pretty safe treatment. Okay. Does anyone take any, you know, is it do you have any certain compounds that supposedly, uh, I guess, heighten your, you know, the blood flow in your brain, nootropics, ginseng, et cetera? Any of those affect the therapy? Anything you should or shouldn't eat or do? Should you fast? Any other important things to know before you get a therapy like this? Generally not. I mean, there's some there's some medications we might have you hold that might make it more likely to have a seizure. So maybe not taking that the morning of if you're going to do the treatment. But for the most part, there aren't a lot of precautions one needs to take. How does it affect cognition? The, you know, you said ECT, people will sometimes be confused, have a little bit of memory loss. Does the transcranial magnetic stimulation do any of that? No, it doesn't. So, I mean, the only way it affects cognition is 
maybe for the better. So if your depression lifts then and you've had cognitive symptoms, obviously those could get better. There's some research, which you know is certainly not definitive at this point, that doing TMS might helpful for one's cognition if you have some mild cognitive deficits. Okay. I know this is outside your field, I'm sure it is, but have you heard of anyone trying to use the transcranial work or the ECT for people with you know, Alzheimer's or other deteriorating dementias, et cetera. Is there any literature on that that you know of? It just came to mind. That's why I asked. Yeah. I mean, there's some early literature looking at those issues. Can, you know, could TMS be somewhat preventative for dementia or cognitive problems? Can it just, is it one of the things that might improve cognition in early dementia? It seems unlikely to me to be very effective for anybody with severe de- dementia, but you know, one of the things it seems to do is cause some increase in nervous connections and in the connections between nerves. And so it seems that some of those effects can be throughout the brain and maybe be helpful for, for people's cognition. So it's a very interesting area of some research, not not one that I've delved in deeply, but what I've seen is is early, sometimes promising research for that. Okay. Well, very good. Any other major therapies that your clinic employs or have we covered the, the top ones? Well, in, in terms of depression, it's, of course, medications are used, antidepressants. Much more frequently than we used to, we use certain antipsychotics to go with those antidepressants. And that's been, a, uh, I think, a, a real change in psychiatric practice that's getting us better results. And I think that's particularly true when we talk about these types of ruminative depressions. But, you know, it's not all about the medications and somatic treatments like ECT. I mean, we do a lot of work with psychotherapy and, and the type of work we do tends to be multidisciplinary team where, and we do this primarily through our intensive outpatient program, but people are doing multiple groups a week, doing individual therapy, family therapy, you know, have a case manager. And it really is important for a lot of patients as they prove maybe through medications that they're doing this type of work that's giving them a schedule, keeping them busy, having them interact with others in addition to the specifics of what the therapy is trying to attain in terms of, you know, helping them to learn how to reduce their cognitive distortions in terms of improving their family relations, which, you know, are just another stress on them that may fuel their depression. So, you know, over the years, it just become apparent to me how important that type of treatment can be for certain patients. Okay. Well, very good. What areas does your clinic serve? Is it Do people have to be local to the San Francisco area or can you do telehealth nationwide? And you know, for, for the people that are within your coverage area, uh, how would they get in touch with the clinic with some information for them like contact? Well, we do in-person treatment in San Francisco and Marin County in the North Bay. Uh, we do virtual work and virtual individual appointments and virtual intensive outpatient program as well. And so if you're anywhere within California, one can join us for treatment. There's a weird aspect that I hope will be remedied at some point where visit is defined by where the physician, or rather where the patient is. So if the patient's in a different state and I don't have a license in that state, then officially I'm not supposed to be treating them there. Hopefully that's going to be changed. But anyway, so for now we could teach to treat people in California and they can go to our website mindtherapyclinic.com or certainly call us at 415-945-9870. Okay, excellent. Well, Mark, thank you so much for coming on and, and spending the time going through all this detail, these uh, 
these different treatment methods. I really appreciate your time on this podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.